0: to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here as always with Professor Akil Amar. Hello Akil.
1: Hey Andy and thank you Andy um, and thank you audience. Uh, I say that especially today because this is our 50th episode. Not quite our, our silver anniversary, but but our silver episode. And Andy, it's all because of you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to do this um, every week. And boy, what a silver uh, episode we've got for our audience uh, this week. Um, we're recording this on, on Friday, December 10th, and the Supreme Court as actually um, justices on the Supreme Court just hours ago, minutes ago, have said some truly extraordinary things, some astonishing things, and, and not entirely in a good way, astonishingly troubling um, things. And we've got a special guest as well. So, wow, um, we've got we, we we've got a lot for our audience uh, in this silver episode.
0: And you even get to channel uh, our hero Abe Lincoln by – uh, uh, echoing his claim of uh, an astonisher in legal history.
1: Which is what he called Dred Scott, and he meant it not in a good way. Um, and we're going to talk, actually, I think, about a- Abraham Lincoln and Dred Scott in the course of talking about today's big news from the Supreme Court.
0: Marcus Constitution is sponsored by Everscholar. Everscholar, as you may know, is a community of learners, uh, including notably the best faculty in the world, uh, who gather for programs ranging from long weekends domestically to two-week international journeys, and enjoy in-person, residential, really life-changing experiences that explore fascinating topics at a level of intellectual inquiry that befits their incredible faculty. We're proud to count Professor Amar among our number, along with many, many others. Everscholar is about to announce its 2022 programs, so check out its website at everscholar.org and sign up to receive emails uh, so you won't miss the registration window. In the past, Everscholar programs have filled immediately, and the same is expected in 2022. Okay, well, our podcast has been on a roll. Last week, we had a spectacular episode with the Supreme Court justices essentially entering your living room or your car through pieces of the oral argument in Dobbs, and Professor Amar dissected the argument, sometimes acerbically, sometimes admiringly, uh, but always piercingly. And prior to that, we had given you two episodes of master classes on precedent, and what to expect at the argument. So when it took place, you were among the most informed listeners. And we're following up on this today uh, in a couple of ways. First, we're going to uh, bring in another legal commentator, one who sits on the other side of uh, the ideological spectrum from Akil, but who has the respect of the entire community of legal scholars and pundits. In addition to learning about him and his career as part of our ongoing exploration of the legal ecosphere, if you will. Uh, The timing of this interview is such that we can discuss further Supreme Court rulings on the Texas uh, SB8 law, because just this morning, as we taped this on Friday, there have been developments in that case. So we're in a perfect position to react and help you understand this even better, and it actually can be a little confusing. You've got the Mississippi case, the Texas case. Uh, the Texas case that we just heard about, these are somewhat preliminary rulings, but still important. Um, there's more than one of them, so it's it's complicated, and we'll help you sort that out. But first, um, I'd like to introduce our guest, uh, Ed Whalen. Ed, as you will hear, has been seemingly everywhere in the legal world. I'll let him tell you his story, but for background, After graduating from Harvard College and Harvard Law School, where he was an editor of the Harvard Law Review, he clerked for uh, Judge Wallace on the Ninth Circuit, entered private practice, and then clerked for Judge Antonin Scalia on the U.S. Supreme Court. He later was counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee, served in the Department of Justice in the Office of Legal Counsel, where he advised the White House, and since 2004, until recently, he was president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, a nonprofit think tank. He's now the distinguished senior fellow there. He has one of the longest standing legal blogs, which is hosted on the website of the National Review, and he has co edited several collections of Justice Scalia's work. He's also published extensively in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. So, welcome to America's Constitution, Ed Whalen. Hello, Ed. Hi, Andy. Thanks so much for coming on today.
1: How- uh, yes, uh, it's uh, Akeel here. Uh, thank you, Ed. I'm very uh, I'm grateful uh, to, 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 uh, that you you could make it.
0: I'm grateful to both of you. So, one of the things that we've done over the weeks here in our podcast is describe different aspects of the of the legal ecosystem, um, things like. Of course, you know faculty, uh, courts, justices, journalists, authors, you know, and so forth. And you've had a somewhat atypical path through the legal legal ecosystem. Wouldn't wouldn't you say? Can you can you tell us a little bit about your your legal path and uh, where you find yourself now?
2: Sure. Well, uh, I often describe myself as a recovering lawyer. Uh, <laughs> I moved to uh, Washington, D.C. 30 years ago to clerk for Justice Scalia. This was after uh, several years in private practice, which was unusual back then. But I I decided I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in private practice and didn't know what to do next and was fortunate to have the Scalia clerkship somehow um, uh, 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 arrive for me. After that, I was I, I worked for Senator Warren Hatch on the Senate Judiciary Committee for two and a half years, where I was very involved in judicial confirmations, including the uh, confirmations of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer to the Supreme Court. After some years in house working for a uh, fellow named uh, Bill Barr in the telecommunications field, I was uh, uh, principal deputy in the office of legal counsel uh, for uh, two and a half years at the beginning of. Uh, President George W. Bush's administration, and for the last 17 or 18 years, um, I have been with the Ethics and Public Policy Center um, as its president until um, earlier this year, and uh, in that capacity, I have um, uh, written a lot about judicial confirmations, about constitutional law, and um, a host of other matters.
1: If I could just jump in, um, Ed's very modest. Um, there are a couple of particularly interesting aspects of um, the by his biography um, that I'd like to call attention to. Um, one is he's worked in all three branches of the federal government. He he did a clerkship for Justice Scalia, as he mentioned, at the, at the apex of the The judicial branch, but he's also worked in Article one, the legislature and the Office of uh, uh, and in in, the Office of Legal Counsel, um, the executive branch. So that's interesting. Um, uh, A second thing that's interesting um, is that. Um, very unusually, I think, for folks of, of Ed's and my generation, um, he uh, did not go straight from law school to um, um, Supreme Court clerkships or, you know, a lower court clerkship and then a Supreme Court clerkship. I'm not sure that I had actually known that before. So so you, and you graduate from Harvard Law School, what year? And then um, did you do a lower court clerkship before Scalia? So just... Um, because that's becoming increasingly common now. There are justices who are actually hiring um, people, law profe- young law professors, for example, um, or uh, out of practice or in practice for a few years. But back in the day, that was pretty atypical. So, uh, just give us the date, Ed.
2: Well, sure. I graduated from uh, Harvard Law School in 1985. I clerked for a year for um, Judge Clifford Wallace of the Ninth Circuit in San Diego. I was then in a private practice with the law firm of uh, Munger Tolson, and Olson in Los Angeles. Um, great firm, great practice, um, but uh, after a few years, I suddenly realized I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life, uh, and uh, told folks I was I was had decided to leave. They said, "What are you going to do?" And I said, "I don't know. I'm going to figure that out. But unless I tell you I leave, I'm, I'm going to leave. I'll probably be around here forever." And um, I looked at different opportunities, including. Uh, uh, interviewing with the uh, solicitor general's office where I met for the first time a fellow named uh, John Roberts. Um, but uh, actually wasn't thinking at all about a Supreme Court clerkship because it, um, it, it was out um, would have been unusual to seek one then but through uh, a process I still don't quite understand I ended up getting connected with Justice Scalia and uh, he brought me on board. Um,
1: this hasn't been pre-rehearsed uh, just telling the audience members and so Andy does, may not even know this but um, in the Small World Department, I'm just putting uh, two and two together. Um, my brother Vic clerked um, uh, for the Supreme Court. Um, he clerked for, for Harry Blackman. We're probably going to be talking about Harry Blackmun uh, uh, just a bit today, the author of, of Roe versus Wade. Vic, that year, uh, when, he, when he was clerking for Justice Blackman, his, uh, his housemate um, uh, was a Scalia clerk, uh, Henry Weissman, Yale Law School graduate. They became good friends. Vic later became actually um, Henry's best man. Uh, at Henry's wedding, and Henry went on to Munger Tolls. Um, so I bet Ed and Henry knew each other at Munger Tolls at, at a certain point, and and that might be, in the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, one interesting uh, link between the younger Ed Whalen and the, the future Scalia clerk Ed Whelan.
2: Uh, absolutely. I was uh, blessed to actually have Henry working uh, with me as a junior associate on some matters. Rare that you one has such such talent and uh uh no henry um uh, i'm sure was of assistance um uh, uh, in the process
1: uh, so all this is about in a word um just for the audience members networking that's a part of the legal ecosystem you know whom you met um, um and as, as i said modest but he's actually already dropped some pretty interesting names bill barr john roberts uh, Antonin and scalia um and, and and others so um back to you andy
0: so now your position, then you're you're senior in the Ethics and Public Policy Center, um, and your work there finds publication in various places. I you know you have uh, you appear frequently as with a byline in the uh, in the National Review, for example. You have you know some something of a column there, I guess it is. Um, so what do you see as your role now? You know you have this position, but what is the the, the point of this position. In other words, what are you trying to accomplish in this role? And what is it about your current role that is more suited to you than the role in the law firm that you found, you know, did, wasn't a fit?
2: Well, I first started blogging back in 2005. Indeed, the blog that I write regularly on, uh, which is called Bench Memos on National Review Online, was established in the fall of 2000, I'm sorry, in the spring of 2005 at my urging I anticipated that uh, there might soon be Supreme Court vacancies opening up, and I thought I would have a lot of uh, uh, insights and information to provide, and in particular, I wanted to make sure that I could uh, uh, knock down uh, on a same-day basis um, false attacks, uh, erroneous uh, arguments made against um, uh, judicial nominees. Uh, of course, the first Supreme Court nominee um, that year was John Roberts, and I was uh, very vigorous uh, in uh, d- uh, explaining his record, um, uh, defending him from it from uh, what I thought were distorted attacks, and, and did the same uh, uh, later on uh, that year and into 2006 on on Justice Alito. So that was the, that was the impetus for getting started. Uh, I then uh, discovered uh, that the blog was also a valuable mechanism uh, or valuable means of uh, talking about uh, principles of judicial conservatism, of originalism, uh, explaining explaining opinions. Uh, A lot of my work was uh, uh, defending Justice Scalia's uh, uh, um, opinions against uh, what I thought were uh, misguided attacks. And so I think uh, over the years, as I've been grateful to um, uh, draw an audience. Um, these have been um, the two focuses that is um, judicial confirmations, including at the lower court, uh, where I've been involved in a lot of the um, battles over process changes as well. And then general principles of constitutional law. And I would like to think that one of the um, assets they bring to the task is um, a, a broad background um, in uh, constitutional law uh, in American government. But I think another uh, an area in which I try to add value is that I can be um, very rapid in analyzing um, cases and in helping to, to shape uh, from the outset uh, how a um, ruling ought to be understood or responding to maybe it's some some law professor's op-ed that I think is is misguided. So I, I um, see a premium on uh, on being uh, quick to write, and I think um, that's one of my strengths.
1: Um, if I could just jump in. Um, a- Andy, in a way, Ed is a precursor of us, of this podcast, because he is trying to respond um, uh, very quickly, and in, in that sense, he is a certain kind of journalist from the French word jour, the, the day, he wants to respond immediately. Um, but he's different, you see, from the, the mine run of journalists who... Um, Uh, um, don't actually truthfully have a long-term perspective on anything. They just jump from story to story to story today. It could be a fire, tomorrow an earthquake, uh, the next day um, a pandemic, uh, the the next day a shooting, the next day a Supreme Court case, and they just cover what uh, the the news is just anything that's recently happened, and a certain kind of journalist just jumps from story to story. um, And um, Ed isn't that. What he, he just explained is he's trying to take certain things that are happening immediately, um, a confirmation battle or um, a, a Supreme Court oral argument or a Supreme Court um, uh, opinion, and and he's trying to respond very quickly, much more quickly than a typical law professor might in an article published a year later or a book published five years after the fact. He's trying to respond very quickly in journalistic fashion, but to try to place the day's events in the perspective of a much larger um, theoretical uh, framework that stretches um, back to um, the past. He's interested in the founding and originalism um, um, all the way through two and a half centuries of our constitutional history, but also with an eye toward um, thinking about the long-term implications of um, this uh, uh, claim or that one, this appointee or that one. And in trying to do that and ed is telling you he started this project you know 15 a decade and a half ago 15 years ago he's in some ways doing stuff that we're trying to do actually in our blog um uh, we often not always but we often are picking something that's ripped from the headlines um a very current um, but try to place it in longer-term perspective, both um, it, its connection to the past, um, originalism, um, and its uh, its implications for the medium and long-term future.
0: Well, a couple of comments on that. First of all, I, I don't think it's really in our, our blog so much as we were more a podcast than a My blog. A podcast, excuse me. But yes, but um, but also I think that um, I don't consider us to be journalists, um, and I don't think that that Ed is a journalist, and that sense also just because he's using the medium of you know print or uh you know internet writing and so forth uh he's not a journalist any more than uh neil katyal is a journalist when he appears on on msnbc he's a a legal expert or a legal commentator that's providing expertise to journalists possibly neil is and Mm -hmm. in in the case of ed he you know he's his He has sort of his own vehicle here. He's not relying on someone to ask him a question. But but nevertheless, he's... Um, he's providing a, a certain expertise,
1: but 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 here's why I, I said said the way I did, and you know if if people don't want to be called journalists, then I won't call them journalists. I called myself a constitutional journalist, and in fact, I tried to meditate on the role of the constitutional journalist um, and the tension therein. That um, in my book, the Constitution today, in fact, that the structure of the whole book is in part this tension between the journalistic side of me, which is responding to things immediately from the French um, word day, um, jour, um, and and like the Wall Street Journal, it's what's happening today. and but trying to put it in a much longer-term perspective than your, your typical reporter. So I do think that, and you're right, Andy, I called us, us, us a blog, and we do have a, a, a website, but, um, but, but this podcast is a weekly thing. We're, we're, and, and we're talking about, often, what happened in the last week, like um, the, the, the debate in the, the Mississippi abortion case. Um, I think today we're recording this on Friday – um um there were actually a couple of interesting judicial developments at, at the court and, and we're going to talk about them in in this podcast so in that sense you know we share something with the journalist in that we're trying to jump in very quickly um but we're different than the rest of the journalists you're right because of a certain claim of legal expertise um but ed wanted to jump back in
2: but, and i certainly don't claim the term journalist for myself among other things um I think there are many journalists who um, undertake to have to to play things neutrally. Mm. Uh, I never claim to do that. I want to make sure I get everything, all the facts, right. And I I do my best when I write to make sure that people can tell uh, the uh, what, what is um, what I present as factual from what is commentary uh, so that they know, what, what, they know. Uh, okay, if I say a case says this, the case says that. If I, if I say this is a good result, they, they know I'm, I'm engaged in commentary at that point. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I, I w- would not present myself as a journalist, and uh, I don't mind the, the insult being uh, uh, slung <laughs> upon me at times, but um, <laughs> it's not a term I would use for myself.
1: Hey, hey, maybe we could actually transition to what's actually happening today.
0: Right. Well, I was going to to say, you know, perhaps one way of interpreting, you know, your your role, you know, and so forth might be to take a real life example. And we've got one right in front of us here. So um, this morning, um, the court uh, handed down two rulings uh, related to the Texas abortion law, uh, SB 8. And And, and
1: when you say this morning, just reminding everyone, we're recording this on Friday.
0: Friday, December 10th. Um, so, okay. So that happened at uh, 10 o'clock Eastern time. And, uh, so what did your morning look like?
2: <laughs> well, I, um, was very ready for the possibility that the court would issue these rulings today. I made sure I set aside my schedule so that I would be free. Um, so you think, saw it coming. Um, well, I can't say that. I just w- 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 the possibility, the possibility the court had announced to would be rulings today. And it's not surprising that, that these were the rulings, um, To wind back a bit, it was sometime in uh, late August that I heard talk about this Texas bill and uh, figured, well, let me find out more about this. And uh, I I wrote up some blog posts, quickly became very knowledgeable about it, and have written who knows how many um, uh, uh, thousands and thousands of words uh, um, about the uh, different challenges um, to the case since then. So I think that's a good example of how... You know, on, on August 15th, I don't think I'd written a word about um, uh, this matter, but it's been um, something I've written a lot about um, day in and day out uh, uh, since late August. Uh, but so, yeah, so today, um, as soon as the uh, court's opinion came out, I um, tweeted about it initially, uh, making sure that, um, that people understood how the court had, had ruled, included link- links to the opinions, and then I wrote a couple blog posts uh, that uh, were a little more thorough. They're still um, very, um, uh, just, just a sketch of what happened. There's a lot more that I'll probably write uh, in the coming days. But I um, wanted to make sure that, um, that folks had an accurate account of, of what the court had ruled. I'm told that, that uh, many uh, media outlets have reported this as a, um, as a um, big defeat for the Texas Heartbeat Act. Uh, which I don't think it is at all, and uh, I, I explain why, uh, but it's that sort of um, uh, wrong take that I, uh, that I um, uh, try to preempt or counter um, in my writing. So
1: substantively, what, what is the news as you see it?
2: Uh, okay, well, the court had two cases before, one involving um, a complaint brought by uh, abortion clinics in Texas and the other uh, a complaint brought by the Department of Justice. And uh, the court ruled in the first case by essentially a five to four vote uh, um, that uh, the lawsuit of the abortion providers could go forward only against um, a handful of uh, state defendants who are are charged with licensing responsibilities and who must or may, um, uh, somewhere down the road, um, take action against um, uh, individuals who have been involved in violations of um, the Texas Heartbeat Act. Most importantly, um, the justices in the majority uh, d- uh, ruled that the lawsuit could not proceed against the state judge who is a named defendant on behalf of a, a class of uh, uh, defendant judges or the named county clerk, uh, who likewise was um, a a class defendant on behalf of a two to be two to be certified class of county clerks, and I think everyone recognizes um, that uh, those were the defendants against whom uh, relief might possibly have been effective uh, in order to uh, uh, stop the um, threat of private actions um, against the uh, abortion providers. Uh, There are four justices in dissent, um, the chief and the three liberal justices, um, who believed, uh, who opined at least, that um, the actions ought to be able to proceed against the, 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 Court clerks. Now, this is this is all I should emphasize um, in in the uh, arcane realm of what um, law professors call, you know, federal courts matters. Some some of the most difficult and interesting questions uh, involving limits on uh, federal courts' jurisdiction, on their authority to grant relief, sovereign immunity of of, of state actors, exceptions to sovereign immunity. Um, a whole host of very complicated issues that I'll, p- I'll pass over for now. Um, but the essence of the of the ruling in the abortion providers c- case is that um, there's only very limited relief, um, l- relief that I think the abortion providers will not find uh, effective um, provided by the, the um, justices in that case. On the Department of Justice's uh, separate case, the court uh, dismissed Um, the the certiorari petition is improvidently granted. I think a um, big defeat for the Department of Justice. Uh, Only Justice Sotomayor uh, registered a dissent uh, from that action. Uh, And so what there has not been, um, in uh, in addition to there not being a ruling against um, the state judges and state clerks, there also hasn't been any order purporting to tell private individuals that they can't uh, file lawsuits for violations of this Texas Heartbeat Act. Uh, I suppose uh, I should go back a, a bit. We're maybe assuming a lot of background knowledge here, but the, the Texas Heartbeat Act is a bill that became effective on September 1 that um, says that uh, abortions uh, done in Texas after a heartbeat uh, is detectable uh, violate the law and uh, it cleverly says that state officials have no responsibility for enforcing this action. And thus this is designed to, to prevent, um, those officials from being enjoined, uh, from enforcement. It instead, uh, leaves enforcement to, um, to private individuals in a way that's, um, been, uh, uh very uh, controversial.
0: There's a lot in that. Um, you know, I think that there in the, in the chief's, uh, dissent in the, um, not in the case against the Department of Justice, but in the other in the other case, the Holman's Health case, um, he talks a lot about questions of supremacy. Right? He he calls in uh, Marbury versus Madison, you know, United States versus Peters. He says where he quotes, um, if the legislatures of the several states may at will annul the judgments. Of the courts of the united states and destroy the rights acquired under those judgments the constitution itself becomes a solemn mockery so these seem that seems not arcane but you know fundamental in its in its approach um so that that's one point i, I mean the other thing is that so it, part of the case is allowed to go forward as you said against uh, officials that for example might deny a Abortion provider, his medical license, you know, or something like that. Um, so suppose that case goes forward and is found in favor of the abortion doctors. What would the implications of that be for the law?
2: Well, I think for starters, um, it, it will probably be tough to to get any such victory um, because uh, you're not going to get an injunctive relief, for example, absent um, uh, I, some sort of threat, I think of uh, of uh, injury. And uh, it's difficult for an abortion provider to say, my license is going to be um, revoked, uh, even though I'm committing to uh, comply with this statute. So I, it, there's a bit of a bind, I think. Um, but what you would have, um, uh, would if the abortion providers were successful, is you'd have uh, uh, some sort of order um, to the licensing officials saying that in the event that you determine down the road that uh, this particular uh, abortion provider has violated the Texas Heartbeat Act. You are not to uh, make any um, adverse licensing decision on that basis. I think that would be the the um, the the greatest extent of the uh, possible relief in, in in this particular case. Let me um, take. Pull the
1: camera way back because we've been and and Ed warned us about this. This this is um, why a course in federal jurisdiction, which I used to teach every year, was actually the course I was basically hired to teach at Yale law school, um, was nicknamed at Harvard Law School uh, back in the 1950s um, uh, by Henry Hart. Uh, the, the Henry Harris class was was um, affectionately, or not so affectionately, known by students as "Darkness at Noon," uh, <laughs> just because it can be it can get very technical very quickly. Let me let me pull the camera way back. Ed in his most recent posting, and again uh, we're talking now on uh, Friday the tenth uh, early afternoon, but he posted something on fr- Friday morning. Um, uh, said several things that I thought were really interesting. One thing, Andy, that he said was actually um, responsive to an issue that you and I talked about last week. There had been oral arguments in which uh, lots of commentators immediately drew some very strong inferences about uh, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett and, and how they might be likely to, to drool. Maybe they join the liberals uh, uh, along with uh, John Roberts' Um uh, and and create um, um, a block of of six justices that that might actually make it easier to uh, uh, challenge this law in a federal court. That didn't happen, in part because. The justices maybe asked a whole bunch of questions, but it maybe was a mistake to infer from those questions exactly how they would rule ultimately when they when they looked at it more carefully. And you would asked a question about how much or how little we could um, Andy last week, you had asked a question how much or how little we could infer from questions in oral argument. And, and Ed actually um, said something about that this morning. So um, um, Ed, what'd you say?
2: Well, I said that uh, I and others uh, you know, made a mistake in reading too much into the oral argument. In particular, uh, many of us thought from the oral argument, as you said, that Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett um, might be with the chief in this case. Instead, they were exactly where they were uh, in the ruling on September 1, when the abortion providers first sought emergency relief um, uh, um, against uh, enforcement of this act in the court um, by a five to four vote. Uh, denied that relief. So
1: now here's a second and related point, because um, this seems really hyper-technical, um, but in fact, really big issues about American constitutionalism can be deduced from what just happened today. And I'm going to actually try to um, um, pull the camera back so our audience can, can, can see the, the really big picture. Justice Sotomayor said, the attorney general in, in effect said, um, uh, John Roberts actually said, the chief justice, gee, if you don't have very uh, broad ability at this stage to bring a certain kind of anticipatory lawsuit, oh, the Constitution is set at naught. Uh, we are uh, undermining Marbury versus Madison and the Constitu- and Co- Constitutional First Principles and the rule of law. And truthfully, I'm skeptical about some of those claims. Um, Ed, I believe, is skeptical about some of those claims. So so let me just give our audience just just one little primer, just a bit, and then ask Ed um, to respond on judicial review and what it's about and not about. Judicial review often takes place, actually, um, when the government initiates an action against an individual. This is actually a very famous theme of Henry Hart's. In fact, since I mentioned Henry Hart and his his famous course in federal courts, uh, nicknamed um, Darkness at Noon. Uh, and the landmark casebook is actually called Hart and Wexler. And, and even today, it's the single most cited casebook by the United States Supreme Court. It's sort of rather definitive. Um, I taught from it. A lot of times judicial review does not occur when an individual sues the government anticipatorily before the government has actually acted. It can sometimes take that form, but a lot of times it's very different. The government comes after me, Andy, as an individual, or you as as a doctor, or Ed, because they claim he hasn't paid his taxes or whatever. They actually go after him or you or me, and we raise the Constitution sort of as a defense. We say, actually, the government can't do this because what they're trying to do is actually unconstitutional and Nothing that has um, happened of of late um, seems to me remotely to imperil that core idea of judicial review, which Henry Hart actually put forth as actually pretty close to the heart of of Marbury versus Madison-like ideas. It, it,
2: uh, do you agree with that, um, uh, Ed? Uh, yes, and, and in particular, I think it's essential <laughs> to distinguish, as I know you do, between judicial review, that is the, the power, or one might even say the duty, of a federal court to refuse to apply in a particular case a law that it deems to be unconstitutional, with uh, the myth of judicial supremacy, the, the notion that um, the, the courts and the Supreme Court in particular have some sort of uh, exclusive privilege role to say what the law, what the Constitution means. Uh, that whatever they say it means is what it means and everyone else needs needs to accept that
1: yeah so let me actually we're going to disentangle that now you're starting to see Ed is just connecting a little bit to um, what we talked about last week about uh, the great and powerful oz has spoken and whether the supreme court statements really are the same as the constitution or actually not quite the same as the constitution itself but but first this really t- seemingly technical point even if no abortion provider even if no abortion seeker in Texas could bring a, a lawsuit in anticipation of some government r- restriction once the go- once the government in one way or another starts to act against individuals against a patient or against an abortion provider oh there's judicial review and no one has ever thought in in texas or anywhere else has ever thought otherwise okay so that's that's kind of one point it's pretty key Uh, what was at stake here is not with all due respect to justice sotomayor or or to chief justice roberts any assault on the basic ability right and it's a duty of courts in proper cases to protect individual rights um with opinions that define um, the court's understanding of those of those rights. That wasn't an issue today, although some, I think, overheated rhetoric in Justice Sotomayor's opinion, and frankly, in the chief's opinion, might suggest that. But that's actually not what's at issue, as I understand it. And I just want to confirm that, that Ed sees that the same way. Um, and, and then I was going to move, though, to the second question of judicial supremacy, which raises a slightly different issue. Because Andy, I promise you, I know you want to jump in, but this is really technical stuff, and I just want to walk the reader uh, f- uh, to get from darkness to noon, actually.
2: Well, I do see it that way. Just to be um, a bit of devil's advocate, though, I think the, the, the part of the argument that um, Justice uh, Sotomayor and the Chief Justice make is that the um, chilling effect of the act is such – that there would never even be these enforcement cases in which they can uh, present the defense. Now, as it happens, uh, the abortion providers actually won a case in state court uh, yesterday. We got a victory in state court yesterday uh, in a case that I, th- I believe that they didn't even file until um, uh, sometime in September. And it certainly seems as though they may have um, uh, misfocused on the federal courts. So where you have all these um, jurisdictional obstacles that come into play. Uh, rather than on, on the, the Texas courts. So 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 judicial review is not just something that
1: can happen in the Supreme Court. It can happen in lower federal courts and in state courts, all courts. Um, so that's that's one point. And some of the special rules that uh, were being litigated at the Supreme Court are rules, I just said, that limit federal courts, but not necessarily actually state courts. But I just want to now... Um, ed talked about judicial supremacy and it can mean different things and how is it the same as or different from judicial review and what does marbury versus madison really mean marbury got invoked today by the united states supreme court they don't actually cite marbury versus madison in every single case Um, so they ratcheted up the stakes today they meaning john roberts and sonia sotomayor and, and this is what i teach marbury versus madison isn't just con law it's fed court's you know, one oh one, and this is what I was hired actually at the law school to teach. So, so I want to actually um, uh, go through it w- w- with uh, just a little bit of care here. Here's what Marbury does not say: "quote The Supreme Court is the ultimate interpreter of the Constitution." Unquote. It doesn't say that at all. Our audience will put the um, will, will put the case up on our website so they can do a word search. They will not find that. They will find if they go online the Supreme Court. Uh, at least half a dozen times in the 20th and 21st century, citing Marbury for that proposition, but never with um, a page cite. The Supreme Court is the ultimate interpretive of the Constitution. Marbury actually didn't say that. It actually didn't say much at all about the Supreme Court as such. It actually talked about courts in general, the judicial department, which includes, at a minimum, all federal courts, maybe state courts as well, which, which um, Ed in, invoked. One of the things that really set Justice uh, Sotomayor's um, nose out of joint, and the Chief Justice's nose out of joint, and 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 Justice Sotomayor's opinion was joined by um, uh, Justices Breyer and and Kagan, and together they, they just add up to four for those of who are counting. Is that this Texas fetal heartbeat law is pretty directly inconsistent with Roe versus Wade and Casey which are Supreme Court opinions from 1973 and 1992 respectively okay they are but a statute that's inconsistent with the Supreme Court opinion even a Supreme Court opinion purporting to interpret the constitution is not the same thing as a statute that's inconsistent with the constitution itself and and One understanding of judicial supremacy, and Ed rejects judicial supremacy, and so do I, if this is what judicial supremacy means, one understanding is, gee, a a too quick conflation between what the Constitution actually says and how Supreme Court decisions have interpreted the Constitution. So in our last week's episode, I said, gee, Dred Scott said thus and so. And actually, um, it said blacks couldn't be citizens. Uh, it, it really does say that, in the opinion. And Abraham Lincoln actually, his attorney general disagreed with that, and actually issued a passport, a federal passport, to a black, which could only issue if that black were really a citizen. And Lincoln's justice department, uh, Lincoln's, excuse me, um, administration, his attorney general Bates, took the position that blacks were citizens, could be citizens under the Constitution, and that Dred Scott was just wrong. His obligation, Bates thought, was to the Constitution and not to the judicial opinion. Now, it's possible to imagine a lawsuit might have been able to materialize or not, in which that could have been litigated, and the Supreme Court would have had the opportunity then to reaffirm Dred Scott or overrule it. And in effect, that's what Texas is, is doing with its statute is passing a law which will not be immune from judicial review once it's, it's actually directly enforced against abortion providers or their affiliates, their aiders and abettors. And as soon, at a minute no matter wh- what other remedies might exist or abilities to come to court, as soon as that law actually starts to get enforced against people, oh, there will be judicial review. Uh, there will be a court case, and the court that court case can easily get up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which can decide whether it wants to reaffirm Roe versus Wade and Casey or overturn them. Ed, I know you want to jump in on that point.
2: Sure. And of course, there was nothing accidental about the Lincoln administration's uh, issuance of this passport. Lincoln ran for president, uh, condemning Dred Scott, uh, the Dred Scott decision. Making clear that while he would respect um, the the judgment in that case, he was not bound by its reasoning, including the abominable statement that 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 uh, that blacks could never be citizens. What do you
1: mean? What do you mean? You're right, but what do you mean bound by the judgment of the case? Just for our audience, because we're we're making a technical distinction that's very important.
2: Sure. Well, the the particular judgment in that case was that Dred Scott um, had not become Uh, a free man by virtue of his traveling with his uh, purported owner uh, into federal territories in which Congress had um, abolished slavery. Uh, So respecting the judgment would... uh, So the, the
1: judgment is Dred Scott is not free, and Lincoln wasn't purporting to try to free Dred Scott. Dred Scott was a litigant. He was a party to the lawsuit. He lost and Lincoln respects the judgment on the facts of the case and the parties to the case, Dred Scott lost, and Lincoln isn't going to try to use his uh, presidential power to liberate Dred Scott as a a, a as a hu- one human being who was bound by that lawsuit. That's the judgment of the court. It was Dred Scott versus Sanford, and that's what we call race judicata, a thing adjudicated, so as to the parties to the lawsuit, um, too bad for for Dred
2: Scott, unfortunately. But well, I'm I'm actually not sure that I agree. That oh. with Lincoln's concession on that okay. point, I agree exactly with what you said. <laughs> but uh, that is, I'm not sure that the, the the president, the executive branch, in all instances, even needs to respect a judgment. But that's that. We'll set that aside here. Uh, so uh, Lincoln said. I'm not going to stand by the supposed reasoning or the principle that this case stands for. And so he issued uh, passports uh, to, to Blacks as citizens. As I understand it, he issued patents uh, as well to Blacks as citizens. He also, as I understand it, signed into law uh, a um, a bill that banned slavery um, in uh, another federal territory. In, yes. Uh, in, in other words, went directly against um, the 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 holding um, of of Dred Scott. So uh,
1: Dred Scott had multiple holdings, um Ed is reminding you: one was that blacks couldn't be citizens, but a second was that Congress could not prohibit slavery in the territories, which was preposterous. Lincoln called that. "Quote an astonisher in legal history," unquote, because the Missouri Compromise had done that, the Northwest Ordinance had done that. Um, George Washington signed the Northwest and Northwest Ordinance bill into law as the I think the eighth statute ever passed by the first Congress. So it was shocking that the Dred Scott a, a court, the Tawney court, said that. Congress can't prohibit slavery in the territories. Lincoln called that an astonishing legal history and signed his name to a bill passed in 1862 that actually did free blacks, for example, in Washington, D.C., which is a federal territory um, and, and, and elsewhere. And that's not so different, you see from what Texas did. They're passing a law. It could go back up to the Supreme Court, which would then have to decide whether they're going to double down on Roe v.ersus Wade. Oops, I meant Dred Scott. Whether they're going to double down on that or they're going to use that new law as an opportunity to to overrule or, or, or disavow the earlier case. So for me, and I'd like to get your opinion on this, Ed, I was genuinely shocked by, so this is what I believe is news today, it just happened two hours ago, Justice Sotomayor's opinion in one of these cases, which you described as having all sorts of a design to grab headlines. I think you're right. She, she's making an appeal to the, the broader American people. So I want to take her um, seriously. She's making an appeal to the public. I want to in real time as a journalist, because I'm not offended to wear that label myself on the very day to say, gee, here's a very problematic thing that you said. She quotes a brief in a related case saying, quote, um, and and she's apparently deeply offended by this sentence. The Supreme Court's interpretations of the Constitution are not the Constitution itself. They are, after all, called opinions. Now, I think that's plainly right. And she thinks that's completely wrong, because here's her next sentence. The nation fought a civil war over that proposition. I'm thinking, what are you talking about? Abraham Lincoln agreed entirely and emphatically with that, which I agree with. I think Ed agrees with that. I think that's Con Law 101, even though Ed has reminded me offline, that's not how
2: uh, many other people teach it. Well, she's conflating two very different propositions. She calls them analogous sentiments. Uh, maybe they're sentiments um uh rather than rather than thoughts but they're not analogous um so yes um calhoun um uh wrongly insisted that uh a state had the right to nullify a federal law with which it disagreed that uh was just dis- disputing uh the supremacy of uh federal law uh not just the constitution but uh, of 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 uh statutes that are that are constitutionally permissible Uh, But the second sentiment, um, uh, and I'm with you
1: on Calhoun and uh, Andy knows that in my new book, I really beat Calhoun uh, uh, up about the head and shoulders. Oh, at great, great length. States can't nullify federal law. They can't withdraw from the union and state court rulings are um, on federal law are subject to Supreme Court review and reversal, and nothing that Texas has has done comes remotely close to challenging that because when they actually start to enforce their law against people, oh, the Supreme Court can jump in quite easily, judicial review of a a classic sort.
2: Uh, But for Sotomayor to go on and say that the nullification doctrine is analogous to the simple and correct proposition that the Supreme Court's interpretations of the Constitution are not the Constitution itself is remarkable. Uh, and, uh, and by remarkable, you mean not in a good way. That's, that's, that's right. I don't think it's a proposition that, that, that can rationally uh, be defended. Uh, Abraham Lincoln certainly rejected the proposition that uh, the Supreme Court's interpretations of the Constitution and Dred Scott were the Constitution itself. Jefferson and Jackson before him had done so. And it really wasn't until um, 1958 that the court first propagated this myth of judicial supremacy. And when it did, um, uh, concocted a false history um, around it, making it seem as though um, this um, wrong and much contested proposition had actually been accepted uh, forever by by everyone.
0: I think that uh, part of the part of the problem here is that um, Texas is trying to set up. Uh, sort of an infrastructure uh, that makes it difficult to enforce those constitutional rights through um, this sort of lawsuit. And this, in turn, uh, points to a larger problem of the infrastructure of how to hold uh, government officials responsible for acting in a constitutional way. So um, there's, there's questions of who do you sue you know if your if your if your rights are violated. I mean, and pe- this gets yeah, into absolutely. questions of sovereign immunity, and there's a lot of you. You may have audience. You may be reading about you know this case uh, ex parte Young, you know, uh, which is discussed at length in the opinion, and um, and she does uh, talk about that uh, Justice Sotomayor. Um, she says um, that. Uh, uh, statute nineteen eighty three is very purpose consonant with the values that motivated the Young. Export that Young, uh, court some decades later was to quote protect the people from unconstitutional action under color of state law, whether that action be executive, legislative, or judicial. In other words, they're trying to give in Young. They were trying to give people a way to enforce their their constitutional rights, and that presumes that maybe it maybe it was difficult to do so, and. L- 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 Go ahead.
1: Andy, let me just jump in and try to connect the dots. Because again, um, some of this stuff is very, very technical. But here are two or three things I want our audience to understand. Number one, now you see the tensions and the opportunities of someone who wants to be, and I'll wear the phrase because it's a phrase that I used in my book, The Constitution Day, a constitutional journalist. We're talking about stuff that literally is hot off the presses. Just happened in the last couple of hours. But in order to actually make sense of this, thing that really is news with a capital N. What John Roberts said, what Sonia Sotomayor said, what a majority did. We're going to have to talk about the Constitution itself and the Supremacy Clause from 1787-88 and how it actually is not making the Supreme Court's interpretation of the text the same as the Constitution's text itself. We're going to have to talk about Marbury versus Madison, which goes back to 1803. Well, we're about to talk about a thing called Ex Parte Young, which is an um, early 20th century case about um, the ability of to, to individuals to, to sue states for various reasons in various ways. So, And this is what ordinary journalists actually who don't have legal training can't do. They can't take sentences ripped from the news and give you the long View how this connects up with a, what Abraham Lincoln said and did in the 1850s and 60s. To pick one more example, so 1787, 88. What the text actually says: 1803, Marbury versus Madison, the the font of of, of judicial review. Confrontation between Tawney and, and and Lincoln in the 1850s and 60s, um, and and our ex party young. First principles of constitutional law were actually at issue in what was said and done. Today and the ordinary journalists aren't going to be able to to to, to see how all of that fits together on ex parte Young Andy, which is which you've brought into the conversation. I told you there there are t- t- at least two basic ways that a court can um, r- rule on the constitutionality of something. One, when the government acts against an individual, the individual raises the Constitution as a shield you can't uh, prosecute me for criticizing the president because that violates my first amendment rights. And John Adams did prosecute people for criticizing the president and they tried to raise the first amendment and courts actually did rule on that. Not correctly, perhaps. And, and if their rulings were uh, absolute and final oh, Thomas Jefferson shouldn't have pardoned those people afterwards, which he did, because those were just judicial rulings. But but Jefferson could read the Constitution himself. You see, he wasn't a, just a believer that, that, that only courts could, could rule. So, so judicial review can happen when the government comes after an individual and the Constitution is raised as a shield. Judicial review can also happen sometimes when an individual uses the Constitution as a sword and sues the government or a government official himself. He's the plaintiff rather than than the defendant. And that's what various folks in Texas were trying to do. This Texas law was cleverly designed to make that very difficult to sue anticipatorially. And just so the audience knows where I come into all of this, my very first article written as a law professor called Of Sovereignty and Federalism, said, oh, we should make it easier for people to sue the government itself. There shouldn't be this thing called sovereign immunity. You should be able to sue the government when it's violated your federal constitutional rights because the Constitution is, is supreme. And and we should read, and that's especially true after the Civil War, that we need to have federal courts in uh, and, and the front lines defending constitutional rights against states and state officialdom. So that's what I said for a long time here's the problem. The Supreme Court has not quite agreed with me on that. And, and Justice Breyer hasn't quite you know, fully agreed with me on that, darn it. And Justice Kagan hasn't actually fully agreed with me on that. And Justice Sotomayor hasn't fully agreed with me. And now they're saying all this stuff now and thinking like, where were you guys a year ago and five years ago and 10 years ago? Because in fact, here's the problem. Now you're seeing... Oh, Akhil was right. We should make it easier for people to sue the governments directly. Now you're seeing, but here's your problem. There's precedent against you on technical federal jurisdiction law, on what um, Ed mentioned, sovereign immunity and the 11th Amendment and standing and all sorts of stuff. So they want, on the one hand, to disregard those precedents um, when it comes to the ability to to come to, um, they want to make it easier to sue in federal court. Fine, But then on the merits, they want to stick with row, row, row and and precedent and and not want that to be a relitigated. Oh, and they're in a slightly awkward position. So these things that seem completely technical at first, ex parte and young, which was a case in which the court made it easier to sue the government affirmatively to invoke the Constitution as a sword against an attorney general. The reason Ex party young didn't quite work in the Texas litigation is the attorney general of Texas isn't directly involved in enforcing this Texas statute. See, so it was, this statute was beautifully designed as a workaround. this landmark case called Ex party young, but you're beginning to see now audience, two things at least you can't understand the day's news without sometimes actually understanding stuff that happened a long time ago, the, the founding, the 11th amendment, Marbury versus Madison, Dred Scott versus Abe Lincoln, ex-Party Young. And second, you're seeing a deep debate about actually the precise role of the Supreme Court vis-a-vis the Constitution. Whether Supreme Court precedent trumps everything, whether how states can actually get the Supreme Court to actually revisit its rulings that states or anyone else think are improperly decided, big first principles of constitutional law are actually at stake in what just happened this morning. And Ed Whalen really is. I mean, when we arranged for this interview uh, several days ago, we didn't know that this was going to actually happen today. But he, audience members, is the perfect person in the world for us to be talking to today because he just told you earlier he sees his job as coming in immediately to provide broader constitutional context for this stuff. And that's actually what our podcast is trying to do as well.
0: So, Ed, let me, let me ask you in that vein, you clerked for justice Scalia and um, obviously we're party to many discussions with him on, on various matters. Take me into the chambers of an imaginary, you know, justice Scalia uh, chambers at this point, how would the conversation on this matter uh, have taken place in your in your mind Uh, you know, to the degree that you're able to discuss it?
2: That's a very difficult question uh, for me to um, try to answer. Uh, I do think that uh, Justice Scalia would have uh, emphatically rejected uh, the the myth of judicial supremacy. Uh, I think he would have been uh, very concerned about the role that, that, uh, that, that the challengers were asking the court to play. I think he would have emphasized that in a system of separation of powers, uh, there may well be authority that Congress could grant uh, that, that um, might have empowered the Department of Justice, um, uh, say in its uh, suit against Texas, or perhaps even these private plaintiffs, but that the court does not have Uh, carte blanche to uh, concoct its own remedy uh, simply when it's dissatisfied um, with, with what's happening. Uh, So I think that he would be, um, you know, very much um, with the majority uh, in this case, um, but would be struggling to make sure that uh, that we're getting the principles right. I mean, look, one of the things one has to do um, as, 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 as a justice, as a, as a, you know, good lawyer in any matter is test any, uh, any intuition against your principles, substitute the parties, make it so that um, you're dealing with a, an unsympathetic uh, fact pattern or alignment rather than a sympathetic one and see if that changes anything. And if it does you better figure out, um, you know, whether it's your own biases that are, that are driving the decision or whether there is in fact some distinction uh, to be drawn.
0: Okay. And um, so now in terms of questions of sovereign immunity and so forth and the, the structure as it's set up now, um, do you see that this law has, and this case, has implications for citizens' ability to enforce their constitutional rights. Now, obviously, I'm separating that from the question of whether you believe that the constitutional rights asserted in Roe versus Wade and Casey are are legitimate rights. Uh, That's a separate question, of course.
2: Uh, Sure, and I'll um, perhaps highlight that separate question by avoiding using the term constitutional rights and and simply say um, uh, rights under uh, Roe and Casey. Uh, look, I think it's clear that the um, Texas Heartbeat Act um, seems to have d- deterred um, abortion providers in Texas um, from providing uh, a- abortions um, from heartbeat uh, forward to uh, viability. Um, and so uh, in that sense, um, unless, unless the abortion providers are simply gaming things, and I'm not, not going to suggest they are, uh, it would seem that the, you are having uh, the exercise of a right recognized by Rowan Casey being chilled. Um, the, the question is um, what's the response to such a chilling? Um, might it be to uh, bring a lawsuit in state court to try to get um, some of these provisions? Uh, Invalidated uh, or blocked their enforcement. Again, uh, no such lawsuit was uh, was filed until September, I believe. And the court yesterday just granted uh, some relief, uh, uh, declaratory relief, um, against uh, some defendants. The the state court. A state court. A state court. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Um, And let me just jump in on on that because I'm going I'm going to be on your right on this issue, um, which is unusual, uh, uh, perhaps, but there would be, it seems to me, next to no chilling whatsoever if everyone understood that there are five votes to reaffirm Roe and Casey. Because if there are five votes to reaffirm Roe and Casey, then no abortion provider should really be particularly chilled. Just do what you're doing. They'll come after you. You'll raise the Constitution as a defense. And and as part of the Constitution, you can say precedent matters and, and whether and if you think that the court is going to reaffirm the precedents, whether it's simply because they're precedents or because they think they're rightly decided, you're golden. You're going to win. So it's um, like if
0: you're using Ed's formula for a moment that he mentioned earlier, uh, I think you're you're making a case that suppose a state passed a law saying that you can't wear a shirt that says F the draft. OK, Um Then would that really stop people from wearing a shirt that says "F the draft"? Given that we all know that if that went to the Supreme Court, that would be nine zero, you know, against it. Would it chill such behavior? That's the question, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's an analogous one. Exactly, and we talked about uh, that case in our last episode. Exactly.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you, Akil, and I, the, 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 I, I think the, the question is then where does this um, chill that I was identifying come from? And I think, uh, as you point out, a very big part of it is the very real prospect that uh, the court at some point in the near future um, might overturn uh, Roe and Casey. And that observation, I think, is very important uh, in terms of the um, uh, concerns expressed about slippery slopes or copycat laws, uh, in other places that's, um, you know, it's, it's, um, not likely that, uh, someone exercising, um, a second amendment right in California, um, is going to be, uh, deterred, um, by some sort of copycat law here. Now that said, I mean, there are, you know, there is bother and expenses and potential hassle, um, in, in, in violating a law. So I don't mean to minimize entirely um, the The chill, but I think you'd have plenty of uh, test cases that would get uh, things litigated pretty quickly. I,
0: I have to push back on myself, you know now and also on on what the two of you have said because of my personal experience as a physician. Um, and you know I, I know that um, there are many times that a doctor knows what to do, knows the right thing to do, and does something different, like ordering another test or avoiding a course of action because of the possibility of a litigation. A litigation which they would almost certainly win, um, but nevertheless, they will not engage in that action. I mean, that happens every day. So Akhil, I think that, you know, I'm not quite sure that you're right about the fact that chilling effects only come from the prospect of losing at, at, at trial. The, 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 the prospect of facing a trial is something that that is chilling in and of itself, and the court also made this so, so point go, in the arguments. go, 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 go on. Back,
1: hang on, and Andy, go back then to why is that different than in your "F the Draft" um, uh, intervention? Well, uh, why wouldn't that be
0: true for that? Well, um, I guess he what it comes down to, I, I guess what it comes down to is that there are some be first of all that would be likely to be in a group behavior, a protest, and so forth. So you'd have a bunch of people as opposed to an individual. Um, and you know, there's a certain bravery, uh, in, in, in crowds. Um, and there's, uh, there's also a question of, uh, sort of the type of behavior. So, um, and, and there might be something that you might believe is your right. Um, but perhaps it's not been in, you know, over and over and over and over again reinforced mm-hmm. or you know, something like that. Um, well, the then court then actually, you... hold on. The court actually brought up the point, I suppose they were a million dollar fine instead of a you right. know, $10,000. So, 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 so,
1: so now, now you know why my the first article I ever wrote as a law professor, an article that's been cited is among the top 70 most cited articles of all time. I'm proud of this fact of sovereignty and federalism uh, by scholars and, mul- and cited multiple times by the Supreme court. I say, gee, I actually believe that full uh, remedies for constitutional rights sometimes involve the ability to sue anticipatorily, to get to sue the government itself to have um, sometimes uh, so, uh, you know very uh, robust injunctive relief but also um, damages and punitive damages so so I'm a full remedy fellow and Marbury actually talks about remedies for for, for rights the court has consistently rejected you know, my point of view. And now I think Justice Breyer is maybe wishing he had paid more attention to what I've been shouting for uh, uh, for, for, for literally decades. This article was published in, in 1987. But all that said, if you have a clear constitutional right that today's court will clearly uphold and remedial law actually entitles you to win attorney's fees and, and other things, then um, which I, I've always um, argued for against the government, you shouldn't be deterred too much because you you should be pretty confident you're going to be able to to um, win with judicial review invoking the Constitution as a shield. And there are landmark cases in which that happens. Many of them in American constitutional law. I'll just give you one: McCulloch versus Maryland is a case in which Maryland went after this clerk of the federal bank. His name was McCulloch. They went after him. He raised the Constitution as a shield saying, Maryland can't impose a tax on me and on um, the bank that I represent. And he ends up winning um, unanimously um, in in the Supreme Court. Um, And there are literally thousands of U.S. Supreme Court cases like that in history that said, I'm with you, Andy. I want to make it even easier for the individual, which is why I want to, the individual to be able to sue the government itself as a plaintiff using the Constitution as a, 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 a shield to sue the state itself.
0: I think you mean the Constitution could be used as a sword in such a scenario, not a shield.
1: Right. Good catch. Thanks. But I I keep losing on that issue, and and Breyer and Kagan and Sotomayor haven't been with me on that thus far, which which you see frustrates me, and now it's beginning to frustrate them. But you see, precedent is not—I'm going to keep making this argument. I'm going to make this argument because I think the precedents are wrong, and when the precedents are wrong, they should be overruled in the name of— Constitutional first principles, you, you see, and that's why I can I can keep arguing this even because I'm not a, a precedent 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 person. I'm like Ed, more of a constitutional fundamentalist. And, uh, and I'm critiquing those remedial cases, those uh, technical standing and sovereign immunity and 11th Amendment cases, just as conservatives are critiquing Roe versus Wade and, and, and Casey on, on the abortion merits.
0: So, Ed, you were saying that, uh, we, you know, you brought, we got onto this because you mentioned the, what you perceived to be a chilling effect, you know, in the interim. Um, so where do you think the law comes into play when it comes to the to to these chilling effects i mean you know is that something that we need to be a that's relevant in court cases that you know akil's saying well you have a right to to challenge the law you can go through the process and and you know even if you you're an abortion provider you get sued well then you're going to defend yourself and eventually it'll get to the supreme court and you may win um, but in the meantime, this is happening. Is that a problem with the law that courts should be enforcing by way of injunctions and so forth in the meantime?
2: Well, I don't see it. I don't see it as an all purpose excuse to jump past the um, jurisdictional limitations on the federal courts. Uh, and I would add that, you know, Congress um, might well have the authority to um, step in and, um, authorize causes of action that it hasn't authorized um, that um, would, would address the situation. In other words, I agree. And
1: um, you wrote something or I'm sorry to interrupt, but you know, wherever I agree, I wanted you to know immediately. Ed wrote a, a post a, a while ago and I think I actually called him up and said, you know, I'm right. He said, um, a lot of, uh,
0: let's hear what he said.
1: Yeah, yeah, but uh, um, but he criticized the um, the, the um, Garland um, administration. So the Attorney General, he's saying, you know, um, the U.S. tried to jump into this lawsuit, and the U.S. actually doesn't have a dog in the fight, um, and and it wasn't even suing the right people, um, who aren't the right people to defend the lawsuit, and, and bringing class actions against state judges um, and and state clerks. I I, te- I taught federal courts for many years. I'd never seen anything like that before. These were very edgy. Um, but what Ed said, and I agree with this, Congress has very broad power, um, twofold. I would say, one to create um, more um, access to um, uh, federal courts, um, and um, and the Supreme Court. When Congress acts, should not be actually restricting. Um, Congress when it's trying to open up federal courts, and you know who allowed access to be restricted even when federal cor- uh, when Congress was trying to open up access. My friend Elena Kagan in that case that I was criticizing last week, Allen versus Cooper, where Congress actually was trying to make it easier to sue states that have misbehaved, and she said, "Oh, Congress can't do that." And you know what she said three times, "Present, present, present," and and I thought that was bad. You see, and so I agree with Ed. Congress actually does have a role in opening up federal courts, and and uh, yet, yeah, but, but, but the court itself sometimes restricts them from doing so. That's not so good. And a second thing that Congress can do, Ed is also, I think, written about this. I don't know if he hasn't. I want to ask him. Even if Roe versus Wade were overturned, and Casey were overturned, Congress has broad power to actually pass a statute. Protecting as a statutory matter, uh, women's ability to procure abortions under—I would say—not merely the the power to regulate interstate commerce, because people do travel interstate to get abortions, but actually, I would say in addition, under Section Five of the Fourteenth Amendment, Congress has broad power to protect rights as it understands them, even if it understands them more broadly than courts. Now, judicial supremacists don't see that, you see, but I think Congress has very broad power, but. Courts have limited that too. Precedent actually is a stumbling block for me. Landmark cases called City of Bernie versus Flores and a a case involving the Violence Against Women's Act, United States versus Morrison. But I wanted to ask Ed does he think Congress has a role both on the remedy side and the right side here?
2: Well, let me answer the question this way Uh, I do think that the express conferral of uh, power to Congress under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment has somehow Uh, been shrunk by the court, um, you know, beyond uh, any reasonable measure. That doesn't answer the question um, specifically um, with uh, whether you could have a um, federal ban on abortion. I think there may well be some obstacles there. The court, um, some justices raised some, uh, or at least raised the possibility that there might be some um, in uh, the ruling in 2007, upholding the federal ban on partial birth abortion, um, I think believe it was Justice Thomas who emphasized that a, um, a challenge to Congress's power hadn't been presented um, in that case.
1: But there might be a difference between a federal ban on abortion and a federal affirmation of a federal protection of abortion is possible to imagine. It's not entirely symmetric. My student, Robbie Flato, actually, who is a, himself pro-life, has actually written a very interesting piece that I hope he publishes on this in which he suggests, actually, there might not be perfect symmetry between those two as a matter of ju- at least judicial doctrine today.
2: Uh, perhaps as a matter of judicial doctrine today, I, I do think that, you know, there are folks who have made the, uh, constitutional personhood argument. That is the argument that the unborn human being is a person within the meaning of the 14th amendment. I have, uh, contested that, um, even while, um, uh, acknowledging that the argument as an originalist, as an originalist matter is much stronger than I had realized, and certainly much stronger, I believe, than, than Roe itself. I think, um... Even if I were, uh, were of the view that that um, argument is not sufficiently clear uh, for, the, for a, the Supreme Court to, to make such a holding, I, I think it probably is uh, sufficiently strong to enable uh, Congress to act under uh, Section 5 um, to, to, uh, to enforce the rights of the unborn.
1: Wow. Um, so that's edgy. I'm not sure about that. Um, but I do think Congress has broad power to enforce the rights of women who are citizens of the United States if born in the United States or naturalized in the United States. And so, so I think Congress has very broad power First sentence of the 14th amendment says everyone born in the U S or naturalized is a citizen thereof last sentence sentences. Congress has power to enforce this. So I think Congress has broad power to protect women's rights under the plain language of the first sentence of the 14th amendment and the last sentence of the 14th amendment. But you see precedent is a stumbling block for me, but again, If you're a constitutional fundamentalist, your ultimate allegiance is to the Constitution and not to the precedents.
0: So we've been talking now for quite a while, and it's really the time has flown by, and and there's so much more I wanted to discuss with you, so I'm going to have to... uh... Uh, follow uh, Akhil's rule of, uh, of genies, that when you have uh, three wishes, your last wish is always for more wishes, um, and and hope that you'll uh, be able to rejoin us for, for some of these things. And uh, what, I, what I'd like to talk to you about uh, subsequently, just to tease it with our audiences, is um, uh, I'd like to get a little bit more into your time with, with uh, Justice Scalia and the degree to which, you know, your originalism, uh, corresponds with his or whether it's uh, changed over time. I'd also like to contrast your notion of originalism with Akil's, um and to see, because I think that this is something that we uh, although we've sort of taken a case by case basis in terms of uh, Akil's approach to the Constitution I think to have a sort of an overarching discussion of originalism is something we haven't really done uh, which I think would be, would be very interesting. This would be a good uh, forum for that.
1: Just a sneak preview on that, Andy, that just to leave our audience with one more thing. You know, we've we've talked about abortion to an important extent uh, today. This is a court that uh, seems very uh, responsive to claims made by religious folk claiming that government policies in various ways disadvantage or discriminate against discomfort religious practices of a certain sort. Um, this is a court that may be on the verge of rethinking a landmark opinion by authored by Anton Scalia, an opinion called Smith, that actually had a narrower understanding of religious rights against the government. You are very, a very loyal a former clerk to Justice Scalia. And in many, many areas, you've actually defended his approach. You are also, I think it's fair to say, um, uh, very sympathetic to claims of uh, religious um, entities and individuals. What is your take on um, your, your own uh, view of the correct answer to the Smith, should Smith be overruled question, um, and your prediction? And, and if you're even willing to give us a vote count, that would be even better.
2: Just a small question there. <laughs> uh, look, I think that there are um, lots of um, reasonable criticisms of Employment Division versus Smith. Uh, that ruling held that uh, laws that are neutral and generally applicable um, do not raise a free exercise problem. Uh, that in turn, of course, requires that one figures out what neutral and generally applicable mean. Um, but, you know, one criticism that was leveled early on is that there really wasn't um, much in the way of originalist analysis um, in um, in Justice Scalia's uh, majority opinion. I believe that was in 1990. Uh, and I think that's a fair criticism. Justice Scalia um, responded to it by, um, uh, by developing his originalist case in a separate opinion he wrote, uh, about seven years later, I believe, in a case called uh Bernie versus City of Flores, um, which uh, the, you know, that ruling actually uh, uh invalidated the application of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, um, uh, uh, to state actors, um, as opposed to, to federal governmental actors, um. I am more comfortable with a notion that Smith is right than I am with the notion that city of Bernie versus Flores uh, is right. I think Smith is a very, very uh, difficult decision. Um, uh, Very difficult, very difficult issue. I mean to say, Uh, but I um, have not been persuaded um, by the argument of many of my um, allies that, um, that, uh, It's um, clearly wrong, Uh, and I do think it's fair to to, to try to figure out uh, if it is wrong, what is the test that um, ought to be substituted for it? So if I could just explain to the audience two really big implications of what
1: Ed just said. First, Ed personally is very sympathetic to uh, claims of religion, but he isn't willing to constitutionalize every one of his policy preferences so so he himself is very sympathetic to claims of religion but he's he doesn't read that into the constitution so smith might be right even if that means that some of the folks that he um some of the causes that he believes in lose under the smith test so he's trying to distinguish in, in that between his personal policy preferences and commitments and what the constitution requires that's point one good for him I try to do that on the other side, Ed. In case not so good it, for Ed, you, uh,
0: Akil, because you just took away one of my questions that I was going to uh,
1: ask. But that's oh, okay. oh, <laughs> no, 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 no. That's still good for me. It's just not good for you, Andy. Okay. So, so, um, he, um, I try to do that on the on the left. Ed tries to do it on the right. Good for him. Second, he has just said that Congress should have power to protect writes more expansively than the court under the 14th Amendment. I agree. And once again, we see the, the problems of being a judicial supremacist of a certain sort. If you think that what the Supreme Court says is the alpha and omega of constitutional meaning, then if the Supreme Court says, oh, well, the religion right extends thus far and no further. that That's what the Constitution means, and maybe Congress can't go an inch beyond that, because Congress can only, under the 14th Amendment, enforce the Constitution. And if the Supreme Court said, oh, it's not in the Constitution, Congress can't go further. But if you believe as Ed and I do, that we need to be careful and and not conflate Supreme Court interpretations of the Constitution with the full possible meaning of the Constitution, and that sometimes other actors can have different understandings, and properly so, especially if they're more protective of rights. Then you believe, for example, that even after federal judges, Supreme Court justices on circuit said, there's no First Amendment right to criticize the president, and you can be put in, in prison for criticizing the president back in the 1790s. Even after judges said that, a president um, was in, within his rights. Maybe even he was obliged to pardon the people who were convicted under the Sedition Act of 1798, as Thomas Jefferson did. He had a more expansive protection of the Constitution than the courts did, and he put that into effect with his pardon. And Ed and I say, oh, that was right for him to do it, maybe he was obliged to do it. So too, if Congress thinks that the Supreme Court has interpreted the religion right a little too strictly and narrowly, it may be able through a statute, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, to actually provide more protection for religion than the court, do those are applications that come more easily to Ed and to me, and because we're not judicial supremacists, and we actually think, oh, there's a role for other branches to play in protecting constitutional rights for the president, for example, with the pardon power, or Congress under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, and for society, maybe more generally, to play in a constitutional conversation, which is what his blog interventions are about and, and what this podcast is about
0: and of course you know when the, when we look at uh, the justices that are on the court now you mentioned a head count Akil. you know we have Justice Barrett who's health Scalia Clark who weighed in sort of on on Smith in the in the last term in a case called Fulton um, and basically saying well let's be careful before we overrule Smith because what's going to take its place and when you look at the language in Smith, I mean, I just wrote a couple of quotes down. He wrote, allowing exceptions to every state law or regulation affecting religion, absent a compelling interest, would open the prospect of constitutionally required exemptions from civic obligations of almost every conceivable kind. That's a quote. And uh, he lists all kinds of things, compulsory military service, uh, compulsory vaccination laws, drug laws, you know, quality of, of opportunity, of the races, and so forth, that might call, be called into question. So I think that this notion that there needs to be a, some kind of reasonable framework to take its place before you do anything about it um, might have appeal to Justice Barrett going forward.
1: I find myself very similar to S position. I think that there are plausible arguments for Smith. I don't think uh, it's absolutely clear one way or the other But I think that Congress does have the power to protect religion more than Smith. So Ed's on the right. I'm on the left. We actually have different substantive views about all sorts of things, including freedom of of reproductive choice. But we play the game, the constitutional game, actually by similar ground rules. And Ed, I mean that as a you know, a compliment, just that I, I think you, you, you play fair and I'm trying to play fair.
2: Well, thank you. I'm I'm grateful for that.
0: Okay. Well, this is again, fascinating. And the, the, uh, the blog is bench memo, which, uh, appears, um, in the national review online is, do you have an independent website that uh, posts that as well?
2: Uh, no, all my, uh, uh, Bench memos, blog posts are there. I uh, have other writings uh, in different places, some on National Review, some elsewhere that would all be posted on my institutional um, website. I'm, I'm with the Ethics and Public Policy Center. That's at eppc.org. And you can find all my writings there. Great.
0: Well, thank you very much. And uh, I hope we can check back in with you again as time Let's goes on. Let's do
2: this again. Wonderful. Thank you both. Thank you.